0: I'm going to remind you of a story that I've I've told you've uh, you've heard this story several times most of you and um, I don't even have to tell you the whole story for you to sort of connect the dots. It's the story that I tell about my youngest daughter Annie who skinned her knees on our driveway uh, when she was six years old and as I was carrying her into the house to put some some ointment on her knees and to bandage up her knees, she looked up at me with these big sad eyes and said, Daddy, if Adam hadn't sinned, this wouldn't have happened. (laughs) Well, this text that we're reading this morning is the proof text for that story. We're diving into what I've suggested to you is right at the center of what Paul is arguing for as he talks about the gospel. So, Let's begin together reading Romans chapter 5 and beginning at verse 12, and we're going to read through to verse 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we need your help. There is so much in this passage. um, And we, at least I do, I confess to you that my, my little brain gets twisted around in trying to read through this passage and understand exactly what's going on. So please, grant us all, uh, all of us, your presence and your help as we seek to understand the riches of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. There is a ton of detail in this passage that we're going to make an attempt to make sense of. Um, in the next couple of weeks, but really, in order to begin to get some handles on the the particulars it 's a good idea I think, for us to get some handles on the on the general thing that 's going on here in this passage and i've i 've said to you that this passage is at the center of what Paul is arguing for as he talks about the gospel as he argues uh, for the gospel as he presents the gospel to these. To these folks in Rome who were meeting in houses and, and who are brand new Christians, many of whom are Jews who have embraced Jesus as as the Messiah, but many of them are Gentiles and they're, they're hearing this letter read and, and they're, they're, they're trying to understand the Apostle Paul just as you and I are trying to understand the Apostle Paul. And I ought to just sort of make this observation. I made it with our inquirers class this morning. Um, we, we can't give in to the, to the temptation, it's just a pretty pervasive temptation for us, it seems to me, uh, in our culture today, and, and specifically, frankly, in the church culture. I mean, I'm, I'm troubled by this. I mean, I'm, I can't help but be troubled by it, but it's the temptation to kind of cave into or give into what somebody calls the kiss method the kiss approach to preaching, the kiss approach to doing church, the kiss. Approach to coming to the Bible. It's the keep it simple, stupid approach. And if anything gets too complicated or too hard, we say, well, that's too complicated and too hard, and it's just, we're not going to mess with that. Well, I, we just don't, I don't feel the freedom to do that, folks. And, and, you know, this, you know, this passage, verses 12 through 21, in a good kind of way, is, is like a knot, you know, it's like hair that gets knotted, and you have to kind of tease stuff out. I see some women who have longer hair sort of smiling. You know, it, it's, you have to tease this stuff out. We have to remember that everything that is here in this book, these 66 books, that is one book with this one main theme and this one central character, creation, fall, redemption, consummation, the theme of redemption, Jesus, the main character. This whole book is given to God's people for, God's, for their good. It's given for our good, and some of it's tough. Some of it we really have to work at to understand, and this is one of those passages that's really difficult to understand, really difficult to sort of tease out the meaning of. But that's what we want to do over the next couple of weeks, and in order to do that, I want to kind of put this thing in its context. I want us to see what it is that Paul is doing here, and then we can dive into the particulars. And again, what Paul is talking about is the gospel He's talking about the great good news, the wonderful great good news. That's what he talks about beginning in the first verses in Romans chapter 1. And and if you think back to, to the earlier part of this chapter, whatever it is about the gospel, whatever it is about this good news, it is something that elicits a response of joy and rejoicing from people. Okay? I mean... That's a test, I think, at one level, you know, it's a sort of a test of whether I'm I'm kind of beginning to get what's going on here. Does it, you know, does it create a really good kind of quiver in my liver? (laughs) Does it create a a kind of a, a, a happiness, a sense of hopefulness a sense of assurance and 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 joy in my heart as I think about these things and reflect upon these things three times in these first couple of paragraphs in the first 11 verses Paul uses the word rejoice Uh, rejoice we rejoice about stuff what do we rejoice in we rejoice in hope of the glory of God because we've been justified You see, there's a hope that comes because of my justification, because I'm declared innocent and righteous and accepted by God and reconciled to Him, all of this stuff. And, and that hope is the day is coming when I'll be conformed to the image of Jesus. I'll be like Him. That's good. I'll be done with me. You know what I mean? And I'll have the real me and the true me, the, the me that will be more human and more real and more alive than I have ever been. That's the hope, the hope of glory. And he says we rejoice in our sufferings because of that hope. I can even rejoice in the midst of sufferings because what do sufferings do? They deepen my hope. They detach my heart from hopes that don't satisfy and can't fulfill. And they reattach my heart to the one hope that will never disappoint me, the love of God that is poured into my soul by the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ. I rejoice in my sufferings because God is increasing and deepening my hope. And ultimately, I rejoice in God himself. I rejoice in God himself. I rejoice in the great giver, not just the gifts and the blessings that he gives. But I rejoice in him, the one who has reconciled me to himself, the one who has made me his child, the one who declares me innocent, the one who himself gives me this hope. That's what Paul's unpacking for us. That's what he's talking about here. He's talking about the gospel that elicits that kind of response. And you come to these verses, 12 to 21, and you come to these verses against that backdrop, the backdrop of what he has said before, that there is this twofold problem that we have it's the problem of sin which results in God's wrath and and sin and wrath are the twofold issue the twofold problem and God delivers us from it he frees us from it and it causes rejoicing and gladness you come to these verses 12 to 21 and you get that word therefore Right, And you remember the question you're supposed to ask when you come to the therefore. What's the therefore there for? What's it there for? It's always showing up, this word therefore. It's there in verse 1 of chapter 5. Therefore, and what he's going to talk about is certain effects and benefits and, and consequences that come to the one who understands that he's a sinner really and truly and really and truly exposed to the wrath of God. But God has done something about that twofold problem. He's done it in Jesus. And so the one who receives Jesus then has justification, has this declaration of innocence and this declaration that I'm positively righteous and accepted and reconciled to God. And all of that stuff that becomes so familiar to us, we kind of lose touch with the wonder of it all. Well, he's doing a similar thing here in verse 12. He's been talking about things. He's been explaining things. And then he comes to this word, therefore, And what he's doing in verses 12 to 21 is connected to what precedes it. And I want to suggest that he's doing two things. As you come to verses 12 to 21, he's summarizing what has gone before, but he's enlarging upon it. He's doing both things. He's giving us a summary of what has gone before, and he's enlarging upon it. Therefore, and let me suggest to you that, the, that a really legitimate way to read that little word is just simply in this way. This is a paraphrase, but it's the force of what he's saying. Paul's saying, I've been saying all of these things to you, and now I come to this. Let me explain it to you like this. Let me explain it to you in this way. Let me enlarge upon it in this way. Okay, That's what the therefore means in this setting. He's, he's summarizing, but then he's going to expand. He's going to enlarge upon what he's been saying already. So it's a kind of a summary. But he's taking a different tack. He's approaching it from a different angle. And what he wants to do is unpack further what was true of us and why and what is true of us now and why. Who we were and who we are, what was true and what is now true. That's what he's doing. So he's summarizing on the one hand and he's unpacking on the other hand. And what he's giving us in this passage is further elaboration, further context for understanding this twofold problem. That we've referred to. The problem of sin, the problem of wrath, how it came to be a problem, and how God in Christ, in His grace and mercy and love, has provided a way of escape from that problem. The problem of sin and the problem of wrath. And again, where He's going with this, in this passage and through the rest of this book, Where he's going with this is to his great conclusion at the end of chapter 8. Because of all of this, there is nothing in all of the creation that will ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus ever again. Nothing high, nothing low, nothing you can see, nothing you can't see, no power, no might, nothing in all of the creation will ever separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus ever again. That's where he's going. And what he's connected to, again, is what is preceded. Let me just make this observation that very specifically, in addition to being connected to the whole of the context, everything that he's been unfolding, he's elaborating and exploring even more what he says in verse 10, in the verses that have preceded. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? Shall we be saved by his life? He's going to unpack that, that particular phrase. And that little word that's translated by, little words matter a lot in the scriptures. Therefore, Matters a lot, okay? He's going to summarize. He's going to unpack. He's going to continue the line of reasoning that he started in Romans 1, verse 18, that he continues through his explanation of what Christ does on the cross in 321 and following. And then following that up with a discussion of faith, how we receive this by faith. So he's unpacking and exploring, but even more specifically, he's unpacking and exploring more deeply this little phrase. Having been reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more is it the case that we will be saved by his life? And that little word by literally and really and truly can be translated in. In his life. Saved in his life. Yes, by him. Yes, through him. But also in him. And what Paul is introducing here, and I alluded to it this last week, is this whole notion that is hard to understand, complicated to sort of sort out and embrace, this idea of union with Christ. Real, vital union with Christ. That's what he's talking about in chapter 10. We've been saved, delivered from the wrath to come through the cross of Christ, having been reconciled, how much more will, be, will we be saved in his life, by his life, through his life? He comes back to it again in verse 18. Just as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads not only to justification, but also to life for all men. See, what Paul is getting at here, where he's going to take us, is that there is much, much more to the cross than just forgiveness. There is much, much more to the cross than just justification. It's not less than that. It's not less than forgiveness. It's not less than justification, this declaration of innocence, this declaration of being positively righteous in the presence of a holy God, but it is so much more. And repeatedly in this passage is the word life, saved in his life, justified and given life through Jesus Christ. And as we get into chapter 6 and following, Paul is going to explore this even further, this idea that there is real union, real and vital, mysterious, but nevertheless real and true union between the Christian and Jesus Christ. Vital union. Now, I said last week that if you come to the Scriptures with the world's grid and assumptions in your head. Meaning, the only things that are true are things that are reasonable to me. The only things that are really real are things that can be tasted, touched, handled, smelled, measured. If I come to the Bible with that as the grid through which I read the Bible... I will miss out, I will miss out on the wonder and the beauty and the staggering nature of what it is that Paul is talking about in these verses. Because as I said to you last week, what Paul is going to go on to say is that everything that is true of Jesus Christ touching his humanity is true of you. Everything that is true of Jesus Christ touching his humanity is true of you. You can read through 6, 7, and 8 and you can find the passages for yourself. Just look for them. Was Jesus dead? So were you. Was Jesus buried? So were you. Was Jesus raised? So were you. Is Jesus alive? So are you. Does Jesus reign in glory? So do you. Now, if you come at that, with the rationalism and empiricism of the modern world. Because that's what we're talking about. Give you the technical philosophical terms. Rationalism and empiricism. Rationalism says, what is true is what I can understand. Empiricism says, what is real is what I can measure. You can't measure these things, folks. And if we come out these things with that grid, with those assumptions, we are going to miss out on the riches, the comfort, the joy, the blessedness, the hope, the peace that the Apostle Paul, that God through the Apostle Paul wants to communicate to us. What Paul is introducing in verse 10, then unpacking even more in verses 12 through 21, is the reality of this real and vital union that exists between Jesus Christ and his church. So that whatever is true of Jesus touching his humanity is true of his church. And there's great hope in that. So what he does as he comes to this passage is make this contrast, this comparison. He sets up this comparison between Adam and Jesus And he sets this up to expand our understanding of what God has done and is doing and will do for us in Jesus Christ. And here's the bottom line something dreadful happened, and it happened because of Adam. And if Adam hadn't sinned, the rest of it wouldn't have happened. But something remarkable and astounding and simply stunning has happened as well. And it is what God has done in the second Adam, Jesus Christ. We were in the realm of Adam. We were in union with Adam. We are now in the realm of of Jesus Christ. We are now in union with Jesus Christ, in the sphere of Jesus Christ. Paul says in Colossians 1, he has transferred you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And to press this home and to capture this reality, he uses this contrast, this comparison between Adam and Jesus Christ. And there are three things here, quickly. Again, this is just sketching the outline. We've looked at the word therefore. We've looked at this critical word in. And now we're going to look at this critical person, Adam. And there are three things that we need to see here. First, that Adam is a real historical person. Second, Adam is the head of the race. Adam is the head of the race. And third, Adam is is the bad apple who spoiled and despoiled the whole barrel. Adam is the bad apple who spoiled and despoiled the whole barrel. First, Adam is an historical person. This is clearly what Paul understands. He clearly sees Adam as a real historical person. He sees his sin, his act of disobedience, as a real and historical event. You see this in verse 12, where he refers to Adam as the one man through whom sin came into the world. The word translated came is a very strong word. It's a military word. It's a word that conveys notions of making an assault. Sin made an assault on the world through the disobedience, through the sin of Adam. Verse 14, Paul says, death reigned from Adam to Moses. Here, Adam is connected to Moses, another real and true and historical person. He speaks of them in the same way. There's no asterisk next to Adam's name, no footnote that directs you to the bottom where you read at the bottom of the page, read in this way, Adam is a mythical feature figure. Adam is uh, an imagined uh, character. Adam is, is a theological idea, whereas Moses is a real and true historical. But you don't see that in the text. Moses and Adam are treated in exactly the same way. Verse 14, Paul says as well, Adam is a type of the one who is to come one of the wonderful things that you, that you really rightly should do as you read your Old Testaments is play the game. Where's Waldo? Right, you grandparents and parents, you had these books that you gave either to your kids or your grandkids, you know, the Where's Waldo things, and there are these pictures, and you're always looking for Waldo. And Well, you should read your Old Testament that way, except you're not looking for Waldo, you're looking for Jesus. That's typology. It's seeing in a type something that prefigures its fulfillment, which is Jesus. You see it in obvious ways in the prophet, the priest, and the king in the midst of Israel. You see it in obvious ways in the sacrificial system throughout the Old Testament. We know that all of that stuff points to Jesus, but the typology is wonderfully subtle in some other ways. You see it in the story of Naaman. Some of you have been reading counterfeit gods, and you know the story of Naaman, the leper, Uh, And you know the story of the little girl who is an Israelite who is kidnapped and taken to Assyria. She's weak. She's helpless. She has nothing to commend herself to anybody. She has nothing at all about her or in her that would suggest that she would ever be able to have access to Naaman, who is the most powerful person in the whole of Assyria. He's the commander of the king's armies. He's second only to the king. But somehow this little, weak, frail, and helpless Jewish girl gives to Naaman this mighty man with the great resume the word of hope that he needs, that his resume can never give him. There's a prophet in Israel and he can take care of your problem. And both the little girl and the prophet are types of the Christ who would come, who is weak and helpless and frail, born in obscurity, who has nothing to commend himself to anybody, any power figure, has no resume or any of the rest. But he comes in weakness and helplessness with a message of hope and he is the prophet in Israel who preaches that word of hope to those in need. Typology is wonderfully apparent all over the Old Testament. And Paul says that Adam is a type of the one who is to come. There is the first Adam and there is the second Adam. And we learn a lot about the second Adam by looking at the first Adam. And Paul views both the first and the second Adams as real people living in what Francis Schaeffer called a real space-time continuum, meaning real history. Some of you remember H.G. Wells' book, movie, The Time Machine, right? Well, if such a thing really did exist, if there were some device that would enable you to travel through time in the way that devices enable you to travel through space, Presumably that device would enable you to go backwards in time, like devices that we have right now enable us to go backwards in space. We need to be careful as we go backwards in space. And some of these devices now have little cameras in the back end so that we don't bump into things as we go backwards in space. All I'm suggesting to you is that if some device like that really existed, You could get on or in that device and you could go backwards in time. And after you passed George Washington and the Founding Fathers and the Plymouth Bay Colony and the Reformation and the period of Augustus and you passed the time of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and went back through the kings of Judah and Israel and you went back to the time of Abraham, you're still not there. You have to go back yet farther, past the flood, past Babel. You would come to, this is what the Bible's affirming, you would come to the time and the place where the first man committed the first act of disobedience that plunged all of us into this condition of brokenness, brokenness and helplessness and need. That's what Paul's affirming here. Adam, a real historical person. Now again, I have to say to you, if you come to this with the grid that I referred to before, it's going to be real hard for you to embrace it. But the minute, the minute that you allow into your view of the world the existence of an unseen realm that may not be understandable with my small brain, that may not be measured because I can't put it on a pair of scales, once you admit that there is an unseen world inhabited by an unseen God who is the infinite personal creator who is really there, who is holy and righteous and good, it isn't a hard thing for you to embrace that that infinite personal God could and did create image bearers after his likeness, a man and then a woman who become the progenitors, the parents, the ones through whom the whole of the rest of the human race comes into existence. I'm not a scientist. I haven't read widely in this stuff. I've interacted with some people who are scientists who've read more than I have they tell me there isn't anything in what scientists have discovered that contradicts the possibility of such a thing actually being the case, meaning that the whole of the human race comes from a first pair. That is simply what the Bible affirms. Paul affirms it. He affirms it here. He affirms it in that simply majestic passage in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, the passage that talks about the resurrection of Jesus, the passage from which Handel, I remember the guy's name who wrote that, William Jennings, William Jennings took the text from 1 Corinthians 15, Handel set it to music in Messiah. It's after the great chorus that we all know, the Hallelujah Chorus. After that, near the end of Messiah, comes that great chorus built around the text. For as by a man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. And you've listened to Messiah and you hear the first phrase. And it's dark and hopeless and ponderous and grievous. For as by man came death. And then it's triumphant. By man came also the resurrection of the dead. And your heart soars with hope. It's crushed because of the disobedience of the first man. And it soars with hope. Because of the faithfulness and resurrection of the second. The second Adam. Adam's name is included in Luke's genealogy. You can read Luke chapter 3. And you can see that Luke takes Jesus back to Adam. The second Adam is descendant from the first Adam. So the Bible wants us to understand. That this Adam is not. A theoretical idea, not a mythical figure, not a theological notion, but a real man who lived in the same space time continuum that you and I live in and here 's the second thing and it 's mysterious we can 't get our brains around it we can the best we can do is illustrate it. Adam is the head of the race, and there is a mysterious but real connection that we had to Adam. We were in some real but incomprehensible sense vitally united to Adam in his act of disobedience and in the death that flowed from that initial act of disobedience. That's a hard thing to get our minds around, particularly when it comes to American kinds of folks who are so very individualistic that the idea of being connected and response, connected to and responsible for something that somebody did in the past, we don't like that, and we don't see ourselves corporately, but the Bible does. The Bible sees us as individuals, but the Bible also sees us corporately. It's what John Murray in his commentary refers to as the idea of singularity and plurality. It's one and the same, and you try to illustrate it, and it's hard to do it, but the Trinity is an illustration of it. Singularity and plurality, one God who exists in three persons. There is a vital and real union among the persons of the Godhead, and yet they are one God. I can't, said this to the class this morning, I can't get to the bottom of the pool on that one. My little brain can't wrap itself around something like that, and this is very similar. Paul is saying, and he says it in verse 12, Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Somehow our sin is inextricably connected, tied up, wrapped up in Adam's sin. Somehow Adam's sin involves us in its consequences. So there is a real and vital union between us and Adam, which lays the foundation for our understanding of the real and vital union that now exists between us and Jesus Christ. And I think we can get some glimpses of it. The Trinity is one, marriage is another, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. some real mysterious deep and vital union between two people who become one. I think we see it in our experience. This last Friday night I had the opportunity to be at the refuge to do a and a with the folks who are living there and one of the things that was asked about was "Well, you know here's this this young girl and I, I want to be careful because I don't want to you know, disclose identities or anything like that, but it was so tender. I mean, here's this young girl. I don't know how long she's been a Christian, but she clearly understands the gospel and has embraced it, and there are clearly people in her network of relationships who are not Christians. And the real and vital connection that she has to these people causes her to weep when she contemplates that one of these people or a particular person might not ever come to faith in Christ. And it causes her to weep. It breaks her heart. You see, there's something, I mean, they're different, and yet there's something real and vital. I think mothers experience this. They know their babies are babies. They know those babies are s- different and separate, and yet there's some sort of wonderful union that exists between a mother and her unborn child that guys don't get. Guys don't get. But you listen to women talk about this thing, and it is mysterious and wonderful. Here's another illustration, the Chilean miners. The Chilean miners, I mean, they're individual men, 33 guys, down in a hole. But they're connected to families, and families have these vigils, and they pray up on the surface. 2,000 feet above ground. But it isn't just families. It's a company. And it isn't just a company, but it's a nation. And it isn't just a nation. It's a billion people who are watching what's going on, hoping, wondering, are these guys going to come out alive? You see, individuals in a whole, but somehow vitally connected to people whose names and faces they'll never see, never know. By the way, just for the record, CNN... ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox, and any other news outlet, whether domestic or international, these news outlets don't cover. Don't laugh when I say this. Understand the implications. They don't cover attempts to rescue turkey vultures. You understand why? Because there's a difference. There is a difference between a human being and a turkey vulture, and everybody deep in his or her bones knows it. And the whole world watches because there is some sense of real and vital connection to 33 miners in a hole. And we wonder if they're going to come out alive. And the difference is that those 33 men were created by the infinite personal God who is really there and assigned them a dignity and a value different from everything else in the whole of the creation. And we feel a sense of connection to them. 69 days. And when they came out, wasn't it like a resurrection? So I don't know how this works exactly, but there is a real and vital communion and connection that we have to Adam, and we suffer the consequences of his disobedience, and from his disobedience, the results have flowed down across the whole of human history, and they touch each of us today. And that's the third thing. Adam, a real historical person who lived a real and true life with whom we have some real vital union and connection, committed an act of disobedience, and the one bad apple has spoiled and despoiled the whole barrel, the whole of humankind. That's what Paul sets up here. And where he's taking us after he lays this groundwork. And we'll look at it a little bit more in detail. We'll look exactly at, at the consequences of the disobedience of Adam. We'll look at this in a little bit more detail next week. But where Paul is going with this is simply to the place where he shouts, where he says as loudly as he can, as forthrightly as he can, is that God has sent a second Adam and that in Christ Christ, God is doing something about this. He is doing something about this. And in Jesus Christ, I have more than forgiveness. In Jesus Christ, if I look at verse 17, I have begun to reign in life in and through him. Now, that's hard to get our brains around. But folks, that is the hope of the gospel. That rather than reigning in death because of Jesus Christ, we have begun to reign in life. And across the days of your life, And into all eternity, the realities of that life which is yours and which you have begun to experience if you are in Christ, that life is only going to grow and flourish and expand and deepen and be enlarged for all eternity. Here's your second assignment, and I'll close with this. Your second assignment this week is to read C.S. Lewis, The Last Battle. And get to the end of the book where C.S. Lewis says, after it becomes a reality to Lucy and Peter and Edmund and Susan that they really are dead, that there really was a car crash, and they really did die, Aslan says to Peter and Susan and Edmund and Lucy, This is the first chapter of the story that will never end, which only gets better and better as each chapter unfolds. That is where Paul is taking us in this passage. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, open these Terribly small minds and hearts of ours, open them up by your spirit so that in the days to come, you pour more and more and more of the realities and riches of the gospel deep, deep, deep within us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We invite you to stand and we'll sing number 164. I hope there's something in your heart that is inclining you and disposing you to sing.